You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you, good morning, and welcome to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam with me, myself, Malid Ahmed, and Imam Tukit Al-Mir. The time is uh, just gone uh, three minutes past seven. It's Friday the 9th of February 2024. Uh, the breakfast show, as uh, listeners familiar with this broadcast would know, is an interactive uh, show. It means that our listeners have the opportunity and the facility to phone in if they wish to and uh, air their thoughts, uh, their views on anything that we may be discussing. Uh, the number to ring is uh, 0208-687-7878. Or you can use the uh, more modern method of uh, posting your thoughts on X uh, and sharing your views that way on anything that we may be covering. Uh, as uh, you know, we will be uh, looking at the weather uh, initially and then uh, going through some of the stories that are circulating both in the Amdi uh, Muslim community and also in the wider media before we hone in on two particular topics that uh, we would uh, want to uh, focus on. Now, this uh, uh, this morning we'll be looking at um, the issue of uh, what appears to be uh, to begin with, um, a conflict between tolerance and religious practice. The topic we'll be considering is a school banning students from praying. Uh, we'll be talking uh, about this with Mr. Wakar Ahmadi, who's head of religious studies uh, department in the secondary school in Godalming, uh, Surrey. And we'll also be discussing the issue with Alastair Wood. Alastair is the chief executive and co-founder of ADEPT, an organization that provides teachers and school staff with professional case uh, work services and uh, edu, uh, edu legal support in um, individual employment disputes and allegations. So that's going to be between um, 7.30 and 8.15. So if you're interested in that particular topic, then uh, make sure you remain tuned in during that particular time slot. Moving on. Uh, our second topic is to do with the uh, alleged uh, genocide that is taking place in Gaza. Well, over 27,500 people have been slaughtered, of which some 90, 70% are women and children. Hospitals, schools, mosques are being bombed. Nothing is safe. Uh, if this is not genocide, then some wonder uh, what is. Amidst all this, hospital workers are not safe either. Early this morning uh, at 2 a.m. Uh, Gaza time, a surgeon was hit by an Israeli sniper while actually operating in the Nasser Hall in Khan Yunus. So the question we're going to be uh, posing uh, for a second topic is simply, how doctors in Gaza persevere? And we'll be discussing with uh, Dr. Aziz Afiz, who is the chairman on, uh, on the board of uh, Humanity First, uh, and uh, they have uh, been able to send volunteers uh, to the area uh, to assist in alleviating the suffering that uh, people uh, tend to be suffering uh, there, which, uh, and Humanity First, let me also mention, is a multi-sector disaster relief and development uh, and non-government organization. So I hope you can see that we really have a packed program this morning. Uh, don't forget, uh, we will be covering the Islamic view as well to all that we discussed throughout the course of the program, and that will be delivered uh, mainly by our resident imam, uh, Imam Tokit and we. So now that mention of uh, his name, let's move on to Imam Tokit and uh, say, Assalamu alaikum and uh, 
what's the weather? Walaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Yes, uh, as uh, Brother Walid mentioned, uh, the weather, uh, the forecast for today is that this morning is expected to see extensive cloud and patchy rain in the afternoon. Um, More rain? Yes. Haven't he had enough? <laughs> hmm? I mean, uh, th- th- my, one of my friends used to say that uh, UK weather is such that you can see all four seasons in one day. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Um, uh, I haven't seen summer recently. Yeah, huh? yeah. I think he probably referred to the summer periods. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So, right. yeah, that, that's the uh, forecast that there's going to be more rain in, in the afternoon. Longer spells of shower rain uh, look to drift in from the southwest. These locally heavy and thunder, thundering. Mm. And the forecast for tonight is that it will be largely cloudy. Uh, with the odd lingering patch of light rain in places and during the early hours it will remain largely dry but some spells uh, will also develop moderate winds Uh, so that's the forecast that's from BBC weather then in terms of news um, I think uh, I can maybe start off with uh, regards to some of the news with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and uh, just last week um, the Ahmadi Muslim Youth Association. Uh, they had a uh, they had a meeting, uh, in person meeting with His Holiness Azamzamsur Ahmed, Mayor his helper, and this was UK branch. UK branch. Really? Yes. Uh-huh. So this took place on the fourth uh, of February, two thousand and twenty-four. Uh, but uh, generally, the meeting consisted of a lot of the office bearers, um, uh-huh. who are looking after the youth from the ages of 7 uh, to 14 the the younger younger youth so mm-hmm. it was it, it the the meeting mainly consisted of those office bearers 7 to 14 or 7 to 15 uh, 7 to 15 uh-huh, 7 uh-huh. to 15 uh, right the follow okay so uh, his holiness uh, he spoke to um, uh, various members in the meeting uh, for example he spoke to uh, Tahir Mateen, who was the first to present his duty in organizing some of the rallies within the youth and uh, addressing the inquiry uh, from His Holiness about the occurrence of such rallies. Uh, Tahir, he acknowledged the absence of uh, such rallies in uh, preceding year but expressed commitment to hosting a national rally in May 2024 at the Bethel Futu complex and following this Tahir's interaction uh, Shoeb Khan uh, he also took the opportunity to, to introduce his work sphere which encompasses overseeing the Salat hub website um, and uh, also Atfal Kona and uh, Sanatul Tijarat and His Holiness inquired about the website's purpose and uh, Shoeb uh, elucidated the that the platform serves as a resourceful for learning Salat. So th- this is a, a very interesting web- website that the uh, Muslim Youth Association they've made, uh, which is salathub.co.uk. But they also have an app, and it is a very interesting and interactive way of re- learning the translation of 
the of 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 the prayer itself so uh um you know you, you can go and learn more about this by going on www.salathub.co.uk mm. and uh, his holiness also spoke with Muhammad Shoaib Ali uh, who briefly mentioned his responsibilities of overseeing the department which caters for uh, the physical health of the youth and uh, also explorers club which deals with a lot of trips uh, the youth take uh, just last year they had taken a trip to uh, to Gadiana in India um, so his holiness noticing Ali's gray beard uh with a light-hearted smile inquired whether <laughs> this was his last year last final tenor in uh, the MD Muslim Youth Association and he responded affirmatively indicating that he had one year remaining so as as our listeners know as well the within the MD Muslim Youth Association it it, it is a particular age from 15 to 40 so so that's when youth ends <laughs> that's that's when <laughs> that's the end of youth, youth. Yeah. yeah. youth is in the past okay mm. so yeah that that's just uh, one uh-huh. uh, meeting is only enough had um which uh-huh. I wanted to mention you can read more on this on alhakam.org mm-hmm. was there a que- was there a question answer session also uh yeah so i think uh, there normally there, there is isn't there? normally yeah. normally yeah. there is uh, but uh, it, it looks like his holiness went to each office bearer to introduce themselves uh, and just sort of explain some of the work they're doing right uh, but his holiness has given a lot of advice as well to the questions uh, members have asked as uh, you know he's asking particular roles of each mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. office bearer you mentioned uh, sanata tajar perhaps you can tell us i mean those people who are not familiar with the term what so, exactly it is so sanata tajar it basically caters for uh, looking after the uh, md muslim youth association catering for it in terms of i mean it has a very wide scope is it commerce and business Uh, commerce and business and uh, one of the roles also is raising funds for the association itself uh-huh. and uh, oh your burgers <laughs> yes <laughs> yes yeah, so a lot of the times when right. when uh, there is events uh-huh. where they're distributing food they're making burgers and chips yes. so all of those funds then go are raised by the, uh-huh. this particular department yes and you've got you've got a tuck shop uh, well the youth have got a tuck shop in uh, islamabad as well haven't yeah, they yeah they've, yes? they've, they've got a tuck shop and uh, that actually runs uh, on a daily basis uh-huh. um, makes so, lots of profit so it yeah, i'm i'm missing so, <laughs> <laughs> so right okay um, all right and i think one more event which is happening is on saturday within the amdi muslim youth is they're promoting uh the fuzzle mosque in london um so they're having an open house there from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Uh-huh. and uh, all the locals are welcome as well so if you are you're driving by the london mosque in near melrose road uh, do pop by between 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. um where you can see the complex there itself the exhibition and uh, mm. it will be a very welcoming um, welcoming uh, for you so do do check that out okay so the exhibition that we having a tour as well as suppose the most yeah, premises yeah. 
So okay. they've probably uh, arranged refreshments as well. So uh-huh. the, the the old thing is there. All right. Um, as to other news, well, um, on Monday we received what was a uh, troubling news about um, King Charles. Uh, he'd been diagnosed with cancer, uh, sunset and what type of cancer and uh, where it is. But the news came as a shock to many. Uh, it means that the king will suspend many of his public duties but retain his administrative work in re- reviewing legislation, government papers and the like and also uh, keeping in touch with the prime minister uh, like uh, he would normally have done. Uh, king Charles was crowned only nine months ago and uh, has had the longest apprenticeship for this role, being the first in line to the throne for over 70 years. Uh, cancer, it has to be said, is no longer uh, a death sentence as it once used to be. So it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, treatment has begun already and uh, likely to involve chemotherapy and or uh, radiotherapy, but that's, I suppose, just speculation. Uh, exactly what treatment he's going to be receiving um, has, not been, uh, has not been revealed. As many as uh, 393,000 people in the UK are diagnosed with cancer uh, every year, and that is an alarming 40% increase since 2022. Uh, but what gives us room for optimism uh, for cancer sufferers uh, and for the king is that half of those diagnosed with the condition in England and Wales survive for 10 years or longer. Uh, the Prince of Wales appears to be stepping up with his uh, duties and the king's second son lost no time to fly from California to be by his father's side yesterday. Uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the, the king and the royal family. Now, one other piece of news that I can share is about um, what uh, was, in political terms, a seismic shock. Uh, This is when uh, the big bombshell this week came from Labour only yesterday, when uh, their leader announced that it was ditching his £28 billion promise to invest in its Green Prosperity Plan. Now, if you don't remember, well, the plan was first introduced in uh, September 2021. Uh, so that's what, almost three years ago, two and a half years ago. Uh, it was when Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves uh, said Labour would put £28 billion every year of this decade towards, or the remainder of this decade, uh, towards the transition to a green economy. Uh, she declared that this would create... Uh, good new jobs in communities throughout Britain and protect our planet. Uh, However, later in June 2023, so June last year, uh, the same Chancellor said that uh, the £28 billion uh, would not be spent on on day one of a Labour government because of the poor economic picture and the soaring cost of borrowing. The party decided the amount would be increased over time, reaching £28 billion per year, in the second half of the next parliament, which would be after 2027. Now, to water down, if that's the right uh, phrase, uh, of the policy that ensued, uh, and in January this year, uh, so not too long ago, Sakia said Labour would spend less if the amount of borrowing needed would break its self-imposed fiscal rules. These including a pledge that the government debt should be on course to fall as a share of the size of the economy in five years. And the party said that every pound invested by the government in clean energy uh, would have to be matched by three pounds of private investment. 
uh, also the amount extra to be invested was uh, reduced by government announcements, such as $8 billion of future climate-related investment and pledged another $2 billion investment in the hydrogen industry. So there's a lot to take in, I suppose. But what uh, seems to have been happening since that uh, pledge was announced in 2021 over the years, that there was a watering down of uh, this uh, £28 billion. It implied uh, uh, um, that uh, Labour would um, have to spend £28 billion in some form or another. Uh, But as recently as 6 February, Sakia was still using the £28 billion figure, telling Times Radio, we're going to need investment, that's where the £28 billion comes in. So when the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, yesterday announced that they were abandoning the policy. There was much dismay. Uh, he blamed his decision on the Conservatives for crashing the economy. I suppose that happened two years ago, didn't it? And declared that uh, uh, not to ditch, it would be irresponsible. Some critics uh, uh, say that it was irresponsible in the first place to uh, to propose it. But that, I suppose, is unkind on uh, on the on the part of some critics. To be fair to Labour, um, uh, it has to be argued that they have to focus on being seen responsible uh, stewards of the economy, uh, rather than committing to a uh, spending pledge that opponents regard as reckless. Um, so the fact that they have um, uh, abandoned this um, this particular policy um, is an illustration that uh, that uh, shows, that demonstrates that they are responsible. Well, needless to say, rival parties have had a field day in denouncing Labour for its U-turn. Uh, the Prime Minister simply declared that this shows Labour doesn't have a plan and weighed in, saying to reporters this was the flagship plank of Labour's economic policy and it now looks like he's trying to rig out of it. Some in the party's ranks are not too happy either. Uh, Barry Gardner, his former Shadow Environment Secretary, said uh, it was uh, economically illiterate. Uh, Again, to be fair to Labour, it is better that he made this U-turn now rather than campaign on it during the election, which is bound to take place sometime this year, uh, and and then fail to implement it afterwards. Um, So should they deserve uh, some credit for that. I mean, uh, Labour supporters would, I'm sure, be arguing that. I don't know what you think. If you have a view, then do please call. Uh, our number is 0208-687-7878. Or you can tweet us, uh, or what used to be called tw- uh, tweeting. You can post your thoughts. Yeah, I think that's the better way of uh, describing this. Post your thoughts on X and let us know what you think about this or any of the th- uh, stories that we may be covering today. Um one other story is about, uh, I think this is an optimistic story, it's about nuclear fusion. Perhaps this is the answer. Advances are being made in this area of science, which will produce energy. But uh, nowadays, nuclear, nuclear reactors that we resort to uh, deal with nuclear fission, uh, where uh, um, particles are split, atoms are split, uh, in order to create energy. But nuclear fusion is where particles are brought together. And the energy that is produced 
is safer because it doesn't result in the production of pollutants uh, that are devastating the world today. So no greenhouse uh, gases as such uh, with burning uh, fossil fuels and no plutonium waste that remain harmful for centuries either as with nuclear fission energy. The technique involved in this is a process that occurs naturally in the sun where essentially small particles, as I mentioned before, are made to combine together to make larger ones releasing energy along the way. There are problems, however, and uh, Dr. Nika Khan, research fellow in nuclear fission, University of Manchester, explained that in order, and I quote, in order for the atoms uh, to fuse together on Earth, we need temperatures 10 times hotter than the sun, around 100 million Celsius, and we need a high enough density of the atoms and for a long enough time. So I suppose that's a difficult stage to achieve. Uh, the experiments that they've had, the latest experiments they've had, uh, produce 69 megajoules of energy. That sounds a lot uh, over five seconds, but uh, we're told that it's only enough for four to five hot paths, so not really too much. Uh, it is clear we are still a long way off from nuclear fusion power plants, but with every experiment is bringing that uh, one step closer. And Professor Stuart Mengele is head of the Space Plasma and Clim Climate Research Community at Imperial College said the new results uh, from JETS, uh, that's the U uh, Joint European Taurus, it's a facility, um, uh, finally run, are very exciting. Uh, this uh, result really heightens or highlights the power of international collaboration. These results wouldn't have been possible without the work of hundreds of scientists and engineers from across Europe. So the company is now, ho now hoping to build the world's first fusion power plant in Nottinghamshire with operations beginning in the 2040s. Um, so there is optimism, uh, some feel, many feel, perhaps justified, that uh, there is room, uh, there is an opportunity certainly to get uh, uh, clean, safe energy uh, through means other than just wind plants and uh, and the like. Um, there are other ways that we can harness uh, energy from uh, the environment without um, um, causing it uh, uh, damage that is going to lead to further consequences later on. Um, we have one or two other stories, but one thing I want to discuss with Imam Tokir is, uh, I know you're a football fan, you're a footballer as well, well, what do you think about this proposal about a blue card? Have you heard about it? No. I've so a blue card is uh, is what they're thinking of introducing. So I hope you've never had a red card. Have you? And you when you been playing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the blue card is for um, dissent, uh, ungentlemanly behavior, and it's when uh, you are not you personally, but a player is sent off for ten minutes. Mm. Uh, in the sin and to stay in the sin bin before coming back on. Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, mm? I, I oh, too many cards? I, I think it, it does sound like a good idea because um, sometimes they're in such heated moments, sometimes you do just need a bit of a break um, mm. just to maybe sit out and mm. uh, uh, sort of, uh, I, I, I guess... Uh, uh, just relax, and mm. I, I guess those ten minutes would be would be crucial here, because if you if you've just been given a red card, mm. then that's it. You're you're not allowed to play play back on. But yeah. if if they were to introduce this blue card, 
then at least they they can maybe sit mm. down and think about what they've just done or mm. if they are feeling angry in a way mm. they can just maybe calm their emotions down and then yeah. come back into the game okay we'll see how that unfolds maybe yeah. maybe mm. it'd, it'd make a big difference mm. <laughs> into the match match game <laughs> yes but i suppose the the uh, teams that you play for and the competitions you play for uh, there's not that much uh, they they don't the the get the level I'm playing at they don't we don't have cards <laughs> you, don't, you don't have cards or you don't need cards we we don't have and we don't need <laughs> <laughs> oh good i'm glad to hear that <laughs> um one final story yes it's to do with northern ireland so this is a, a big story because the the conflict in northern ireland is in some way framed as uh, a religious conflict between catholics and protestants um and uh, there was this impasse uh, where the uh, assembly the northern ireland assembly that basically is the assembly that is used to govern uh, the province um uh, had was had been suspended so last week uh, the reestablishment of the Northern Ireland Assembly where Sinn Féin leader Michelle O'Neill was sworn as the first minister was um uh, historic because it was the first time that a member from the Republican wing the Catholic wing of Northern Ireland politics was instated in such a position Emma Little Pengelly is the deputy first minister belongs to the Democratic Unionist Party I suppose protestants that supports uh, its union with Britain as part of the UK and uh, what was remarkable is that despite the difference between uh, the two parties both have joined hands uh, together uh, in order to work for the good of the people that they have been elected to uh, to serve and both the uh, prime minister and the um, uh, of of the united kingdom <coughs> rishi sunak and the tisha of uh, uh the republic finally what uh, when uh, we're in northern ireland um, this early this week uh, to meet the first and deputy first minister to discuss the future um in what were very cordial and positive discussion the promise of uh, 3 billion for the region by westminster must have helped in encouraging the rapprochement but this kind of cooperation both well for the future and should serve as an example to others around the world uh, that are suffering from division and discord that there is always hope and if people do uh, get together then uh, that's always uh, for the uh, for the for the future good uh, one of the hurdles that was preventing northern ireland from functioning again was a dispute over brexit uh, this is when uh, the dup the 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 party that wants closer ties with the uk um Uh, objected to there being checks on goods traveling from the uh, island of Britain uh, to northern Ireland this was to satisfy EU, EU requirements now only those goods will undergo checks that are destined for the republic uh, of Ireland to northern Ireland so new legislation is being passed in Westminster to this effect uh, more than this the treasury offered as i mentioned before 3.3 billion package to return to power sharing which further incentivized the drive towards an agreement uh, the institutions were, were restored on saturday after deal between the uk and gov- uh, uk government and the dup and this was as i mentioned to address the concerns about the way that trade was being dealt with um uh, between 
the uh, province and uh, mainland, uh, mainland Britain. Anyway, I think it's near 7.30, although my clock isn't working at the moment. But it seems that it's uh, 7.30, 7.30, at least that's what my phone is saying. And it's best we press on and look at the first of our main stories. Uh, it is about um, uh, prayers and schools and the fact that um, um, a school has banned students from praying. Uh, now, schools are too often the crucible in which uh, social conflicts are fought out. We teachers expect to uh, expect it to put uh, right whatever we fail to uh, fix in in the world outside. Religion is one such battleground where values are set by education secretaries, and of whom there have been. Ten in the past uh, 14 years. Uh, the latest uh, row blew up in Michaela Community School in Brent, northwest London. Catherine uh, Birbal Singh, uh, notorious free school, uh, regimented to her direction. The uh, discrimination case brought by a Muslim girl last week stirred up right wing commentators devoted to the head teacher who made her name condemning uh, education under labor as broken. Uh, so this is, uh, I believe, the school where um, uh, the uh, uh, prayers, uh, there was a, a clampdown on prayers being offered uh, in school. Um, so we will be talking uh, hopefully very soon uh, to um, Mr. Bakar Ahmadi, who is the head of religious education in a school in Surrey. Uh, and while we wait for him to come on, I, I think that I must mention I've never had uh, problems either for my children or for myself in offering prayers at school. I don't know whether that's been uh, your experience. Uh, uh, they've mean, always uh, been accommodating. Uh, they've always yeah, allowed a room yeah. uh, to be given for that purpose. I mean, the, the thing is that, in actual fact, schools should accommodate uh, people, you know, students of other religious backgrounds, and mm. they should welcome that uh, because it shows the diversity of the school as well, and they are accepting to um, students from all uh, backgrounds. And we know from schools, uh, you know, Catholic schools and uh, any other schools that, you know, if you do go then you know they do have a ceremony where uh you know where they where they pray and collectively they pray so if you know if if uh if so such religious customs are being adopted for catholic schools then you know they they should show diversity as well where everyone is is being welcome as well just a bit more um insight into this uh this issue as well um, it says that uh, one girl was playing uh, was praying in the back uh, in the playground, and uh, soon became thirty pupils. The school says uh, the KC representing the school trust in the case says that they coerced other Muslim people to join them, and fifty percent of Muslims there are are Muslims. And uh, children were intimidated into greater observance. Mm. Uh, the school observed a child starting to wear a headscarf who had not previously done so. And a little girl dropped out of the school uh, choir as she was told by one of the other Muslim children that uh, this was forbidden during the month of Ramadan. Uh, so children were told 
that they were bad Muslims if they didn't pray. Uh, so yeah, we, let, let's mm. get more on this. Uh, yeah. But I do believe yeah. we are uh, joined by our first guest. Yes, we are. We are. Um, we have. I'm pleased to say, uh, Mr. Okar, I'm on the line. Thank you very much. Assalamualaikum, uh, Okar. Thank you very much for joining us on the breakfast show. Assalamualaikum. Thank you. Uh, what impact do you think banning prayer in schools has on students' freedom of expression and religious rights? So, interesting uh, story. Um, I think I think maybe this particular case uh, is more relevant in the context of freedom of religion and belief. I think rather than uh, free expression per se. Um, I think you know, and you've alluded to yourself, Wilid uh, Saab, about you know. Commonly, the experience is that you know prayers are allowed to be offered um, mm. in a safe space. It's part of ensuring that uh, children in school are you know made to feel valued and respected for their faith, tradition, and belief, whatever that might be. Um, I mean, schools do have a responsibility to ensure that um, something called SMSC is upheld. So that's the spiritual, moral social and cultural development of people that's very much promoted in schools and also uh, British values of having respect and tolerance for others. So I think in terms of, you know, this particular student that has been mentioned who took the school to court um, has has said that this, this ban on, on the formal prayer within the school has, has fundamentally changed how she feels about being a Muslim in this country. And, and she's challenging this ban on, on three grounds. Firstly, it's a breach of the public sector equality duty uh, that, that schools are required to uphold. Um, it's also been said that it's uh, discriminatory under Section 19 of the Equality Act. Uh, and also along with that, it's uh, contrary to Article 9 of the European Convention of Human Rights, or on human rights, as, as incorporated into UK law. Um, the Equality Act 2010 actually uh, states and highlights what are called nine protected characteristics. And this is reflected in lots of school policies. Uh, so ensuring that no pupil receives less or more favorable treatment because of their disability, race, um, special education needs, uh, and, and religion and belief is also included in that. Um, so obviously the school in question denies it's guilty of any such breach, but obviously I think the impact on on the students in this school, and I think Muslim students more specifically, uh, is is clear. And I think evidently any, any ban on religious freedoms uh, in, in 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 a school context is bound to be met with with disapproval and also disgust, because I think it it seems to obviously go against the uh, the values and principles that the UK is, has a proud history of. Hmm. Hmm. Are there alternative uh, solutions to address concerns about religious practices in schools without without outright banning them? Yeah, I think there can always be solutions. Uh, I think where there's a will, there's a way. Um, I think for many religious pupils, their beliefs, their, their particular practices very much informs who they are, the way they think, uh, and also the way they live. And, and this should be recognized and respected, and it largely is within schools. Um, I think from a from a school perspective, and, and you know, from the point of view of, a, of maybe management level, although I don't work at a management level, um, I think you know, efforts should be made, and they generally are, uh, to accommodate requests relating to religious observance. So, you know, and also without there being the feeling that one particular religion 
or faith communities being given special treatment, as we alluded to with the Equality Act. Hmm. Um, I think I think it's very easy to make assumptions also about students that and and whether they follow religion in in the same way as others, or slightly or completely differently. I think we need to acknowledge there is diversity of thought and practice. I think one of the most sort of straightforward steps that and and a, you know a step towards a solution that could be taken by any school is is to know your pupils first you know understand what their needs are um if if it's okay to give an example of the school that i'm working in very recently we um initiated a project in which we are creating a multi-faith space uh for students of, of all beliefs and backgrounds and one of the first things we've done is to send out a survey to both staff and students to ascertain what is the level of interest or demand in such a space. Um, I think one thing to clarify maybe about this particular case is that, you know, quiet prayer can't be legislated for. Um, you know, that can take place at any point, at any place. I think the issue in question is more related to the formal prayer where there have to be specific arrangements made for a group of students to pray somewhere. Um, and it is quite possible to do that uh, within a school context. Um, although I think it's particularly true that you know, those sorts of requests tend to come from Muslim students because of the formal nature of the prayer at particular times of the day, such as during the lunch hour. Hmm. Uh, I, I think it's very important that schools involve parents and leaders in the community in the consultation process of, of putting in place something that obviously will uphold the values of school and also you know, help them meet their religious obligations. Um, I think also at the same time, you know, it's been sort of as Fakir uh, Saab mentioned in the introduction to the story, um, there have been uh, reports of the students themselves um, you know, showing discourtesy uh, that there was, the school was subject to uh, intimidation and harassment and also even worse than that. Um, and that's not the way that you know, Muslims certainly or any faith community should, should conduct themselves. Um, and, and I think the situation could have been avoided with better communication, I think, between mm. students, the parents, the staff. Um, I think that the school in question has mentioned a concern about they don't want to have students wandering around unsupervised. We have seen in many cases uh, in the last few years, especially that when it comes to Ramadan, and, and the month of fasting is coming up very soon, mm. you know, generally schools do make more of an effort to provide a prayer space. They recognize the importance place that fasting has in the place in the lives of many Muslims um, you know they might sort of arrange for them to miss PE lessons or music lessons even mm. I mean the prayers are not particularly long but I think there's one uh, very sort of good example set by a, a head teacher who is not a Muslim uh, he wrote a letter in the Times about this very issue a couple of weeks ago which was published and he's a head teacher of more than 20 years in a predominantly Muslim school in Birmingham um, and he actually quoted the National Secular Society's definition of secularism as, quote, freedom to practice one's religion or belief without harming others or to change it or not have one, according to one's conscience, close quote. And what he said in the letter was that he applied a very firm and consistent uh, sort of discipline uh, based on, on shared values within the school. And, and as part of accommodating requests for Muslims to pray in, in the school, he did also actually make it a policy that students were not allowed to pressure others uh, of the same faith, for example, engage or not engage in any form of observance, including Friday prayers. I think as part of this story about the girl who seemed to be pressured to wear the hijab and other Muslim students who were 
sort of being pushed to join the prayers, um, I think there's a way of, of addressing that. And, and I think the head teacher's approach is, looks to be a good one and, and, and the way forward, certainly. So I think it is, you know, very important also that parents um, and the students themselves, you know, who are requesting these sort of arrangements are are appreciating, you know, this, this freedom that they enjoy in this country. Um, you know, one of the traditions of Islam is, you know, exemplified with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, who's taught that, you know, anyone who is uh, ungrateful to people cannot be grateful to God. Hmm. So if you're given religious freedom, you're given a space to, you know, fulfill your religious obligations, that comes with a certain expected etiquette and conduct, uh, which is obviously expected of, of Muslims as it is of anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've you've been head of religious education in schools both in the Midlands and in Surrey. Is, is there? I mean, there's a disparity between, I suppose, the the uh, the makeup of both both these areas. Have you found that also to be reflected in the, in uh, the difficulties of the ease in which you are able to provide? Uh, facilities for people to pray or for students to pray? I mean, as I mentioned, in the school that I'm working in now, which is my first year here, uh, one of the things that you know I've, I've introduced is this idea of a multi-faith space. Um, and, and one of the first things that we've done is to uh, send an email out asking for responses from staff and students. Um, and there are, you know, students of, of um, various backgrounds and beliefs to have responded quite positively. Uh, there was one student in particular who said that, you know, I like to meditate, and, you know, this particular uh, space would be really, uh, you know, of, of great interest and use to me. Um, so I think, you know, as long as students, I think religion is largely a very private matter. Um, I think the dynamics in Birmingham are quite different, and that there is much more of a, I suppose, a recognition that um, to keep a school happy and healthy, um, is to is to meet students and parents in the middle mm. and provide them space and have arrangements made for them. And schools generally, I would say, do go out their way to do that. I think that's, that's a testament to the uh, the leadership and management within schools, which recognise the importance of those practices. And and I think you know when when students are given that space, that recognition, that respect, and they obviously they show those same qualities in response and in return. Then they are they're happier within hmm. school. Um, um, Brother Tokir is uh, with me. Also wants to ask a few questions. If you don't mind. Assalamualaikum, uh, Brother Karamdi. Uh, great discussion here. Um, I wanted to ask you what role should parents, teachers, and police policymakers play in shaping policies regarding religious practices within uh, the school setting? Yeah, I think you know, all of those. Um, you know, groups of people have a, have a huge part to play um, mm. in the life of any school. And the school, as we know, is, a, is, is very much a, a central uh, part and, and a key player in the local community. And, and they need to be happy and healthy places. Uh, and I think the, the important thing to remember, really, and I think this is where perhaps this particular situation could have been avoided, potentially, is, is keeping open the lines of communication and dialogue. Uh, you know, between students, uh, parents, governors, staff, you know, other stakeholders uh, within a school. Um, and I think the important sort of thing to bear in mind is, is to uh, keep in view, you know, the ha- how schools can support their students. Yeah, and obviously that's why students go to school and schools 
have to be uh, safe spaces uh, and welcoming spaces for, for everyone, regardless of who they are and what they are. Um, so students need to be supported uh, in being able to, you know, where, where it doesn't infringe upon the rights and freedoms of others is to have their own uh, freedom of belief and religion protected as well. And I think it's really important that that, that balance is struck also. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for that. And we see that in schools, especially here in, in the United Kingdom, uh, they teach tolerance and equality as well as giving uh, students education on different religions. I want to ask you, how will banning religious practices in school affect what is being taught? Um, my personal view is that there's not a direct correlation between the two things. Um, I, th- I think the first issue you mentioned about teaching tolerance and equality, that's very much about um, you know what's taught in the curriculum, mm. you know, what content of lessons will be, what resources are being taught. Um, the, the second, which is about sort of banning religious practices, is more, I think, to do with personal expressions of belief, whether that's in school or, or out of it. Um, in any case, I think it's a useful context to uh, raise the issue with students, you know, within within lessons or classes um, about you know the importance of religious freedoms and ensuring that you know it, it is a protected characteristic. People of any religion belief should be able to practice their faith freely, um, without fear, but also without favour as well. Um, so I think as long as those uh, matters are, are emphasized um and we'll see we will see less problems of this nature absolutely great thank you so much uh, that is uh, all from us thank you so much for joining the discussion this morning uh, so that was Bukharam, uh, the head of religious studies department in secondary school in Golving. sorry Yes, okay. Um, we are going to be uh, speaking to Alistair Wood as well. Uh, I don't know whether he's been put through, um, but uh, if he has, then I hope that our uh, engineer will be able to let us know. Um, uh, Alistair Wood, uh, let me just give uh, a brief um, introduction as to who he is. He's the chief executive and co-founder of EDEPT, an organization that provides teachers and school staff with professional casework services and uh, edu-legal support in individual employment disputes and allegations. EDEPT are a union alternative, meaning that they are a, a, um, they are a political and independent offering objective uh, advice on the educational uh, to the educational uh, sector. Um, so I think while we're waiting, uh, um, let me just see. Mr. Alistair Wood, are you on the line? So we haven't got him on the line. So it means, uh, Imam Tokir, uh, we have to have you now <laughs> on the microphone to give us some Islamic perspective to all this. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, one thing... Uh, a respected Vakar Amdi, what he mentioned was that, look, students themselves, they also have a role to play here when, you know, they have been given that permission, when they have been given that right to pray within the school. They they should also not abuse these rights, um, mm-hmm. you know, instead of telling other students that while you're not praying, then, you know, you should be joining um, 
or to label each other that you know you're doing this this is completely forbidden this is uh, not allowed within islam you know you, you should be uh, displaying your um, uh, your freedom in the best possible manner as well and this is what uh, brother Rukar md this one aspect he was mentioning as well um just a bit more on uh, on this article that we are reading um the the article says that uh, school heads uh, uh this week wonder how the situation of uh, of uh, Michelle community school reacted uh, this state of conflict and uh, bullying of any kind has to be stopped at once and this is about bullying more than religion said one another secondary school head said that we have students uh, pray at break or lunch and one of our staff oversees it and never been a problem never heard of it being a problem in another school and if that bullying or intimidation happened in my school I'd focus on the ethos and culture where students feel intimidating others is appropriate and uh, furthermore it says that I, I don't know if this explosive conflict is caused by the school rigidity where every minute of every child's day is regimented the move slightly in uh, single file around the school while in class their eyes must always fix on the teacher and there is no free socializing so in break they only meet groups of maximum of four and for lunch they recite poetry and lunch conversation is limited to a subject set by a teacher and uh, parents choose this knowingly and they are rewarded with top exam results but others uh, would never have their child drilled like this so they they're saying that not only um this is also in a, you know where students have been put into peer pressure and bullying so that is also one cause of uh, this incident which has happened and uh, so this is this particular school you're talking about yeah this this particular oh, okay. school where they they they've done this mm-hmm. um and uh, also the the um the Sutton Trusts uh, alarming report earlier this mo- re- month revealed just how socially selective faith comprehensives have become and even more selective than grammar schools the top performing comprehensives admit that 5% fewer children on free school meals uh, than would be expected in their local area and faith schools are more selective of all uh, so certain trust founder peter uh, peter lamel uh, says that the social segregation is unacceptable calling for a new admission code catholic schools the most socially segregated of all always deny it with a slippery claim that catholic schools take in 50% more pupils from most deprived backgrounds than the state sector uh, than the uh, justical use of background uh, disguises taking socially better off children from zones marked deprived and the last time labor was in power it allowed councils to use lotteries to locate school places and 26 councils choose their fairer social spread but along with the scrapping uh, sure start and anything of labor origin um 
the Michel Gove great purge uh, during his tenure as educational secretary banned admission lotteries and it's time to let councils bring them back to prevent social segregation and time to abolish uh, religious schools. Um, so I don't know what your thought is on that. Do let us know. Uh, you can call us on by calling us on 0208687 or you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK or for more information you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk So Look, uh, my my view on this is that um, w- schools should be more accommodating of letting students perform their prayers or uh, their their religious customs. I mean, from what I've seen, me growing up in secondary school here, um, the schools I've been to, they've always been accommodating mm. in terms of prayer as well. And to perform your prayers, it doesn't really take that long. Um, and... Uh, I've never had to take time out from my school uh, lessons um, in order for me to perform my prayers. It was always done during the lunchtime period where where I've had my time, where I can have my food and go to the playground. It was it's usually done in that time and I and I think that's how it's like in generally other schools. So we mm-hmm. should be accommodating in that sense. And it and this actually reminds me of an incident um that uh uh, from an Islamic point of view, I guess, if I want to take that, uh, even within our mosques, in our mosque settings um, around the world, you know, everyone is welcome, all walks of life. It's not just Muslims that come to the mosque, but uh, especially you'd see within the, the Muslim community, integration is something which is highlighted so on, on a daily basis. And uh, this is found... Uh, from the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him as well, when we know that a Christian group from Najran came to meet the Prophet, um, he very graciously gave his own mosque and uh, he said that, you know, go go pray over there. Uh, so we see this example from the Prophet himself that uh, integration um, has always been a core value within Islam. And uh, uh, just here as well in the Beth of Tu complex, we, on a on a regular basis, you know, people of all walks of life are coming. They're seeing the complex, the mosque, and uh, quite often a lot of the questions we do get asked is that um, if I'm not Muslim, am I still allowed to enter the mosque? So, uh, you know, having said that, everyone is welcome to the mosque, mm-hmm. um, and uh, when it comes to such matters of religions you know we we should be welcoming um even in schools uh, students should be allowed to uh, perform their prayers uh, when when they, when they have to hmm. and i think and here the, the issue also was one of uh, of uh, compulsion as well because uh, what seems to have come out regarding that story is uh, an indication that perhaps uh, the certain Muslims uh, were praying, and those Muslim children that weren't praying were being forced uh, to uh, observe their religious duties. And I think that also is something that needs to be taken to, uh, into account. But generally, I think that we uh, are very grateful and we 
marvel uh, the reality um, that um, in this country we are able to uh, perform our religious duties uh, and obligations without fear of any um, any any reprisals of any kind or uh, any restrictions so uh, i think that uh, this story is um, something that is not uh, one that is um, uh, is common uh, and that has to be that has to be understood uh, generally the the country that we find ourselves in is very tolerant and observes the kinds of tolerance that Islam would uh, would promote. So that also has to be mentioned. Uh, I don't think we're going to have uh, Mr. Alastair Wood, certainly not before the uh, the uh, news, uh, so we'll have to leave that till later. Uh, there will be uh, a short break before we have the news. After news, we'll continue with this particular topic. And then also look at the next uh, topic about uh, how doctors in Gaza persevere. So please don't go away. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with myself, Walid Ahmed Imam and Imam Toki Tanweer. We were discussing before the break and we'll continue to discuss now this uh, issue about uh, a school banning students from praying. Uh, we, I think uh, we were hoping to be joined by uh, a guest uh, but unfortunately, um, Alastair uh, is not going to be uh, available, is not available to us, Alastair Wood, who's the chief executive of, the, of uh, ADEPT. Um, so we'll have to look at uh, the uh, the issue of praying in a more broader context. And uh, uh, it is something that is um, very basic uh, in Islam, isn't it? It's a, it's a fundamental duty. Absolutely. Uh, but why, why is prayer so in, given so much importance, would you say? Um, I mean, if we uh, look at the fundamentals of Islam, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has explained that uh, that you know, as a Muslim, you, you your two main fundamental rights are one is that you should give due rights towards Allah the Almighty. And within that, prayer is also there. That, you know, you continuously remember Allah the Almighty. And this is all done through prayer. And we know that within Islam, uh, Muslims pray five times a day. Whereas if you look at any other religion, uh, maybe it might be once a day. We know that in within Christianity, you know, you'd be going to the church on the weekend, on a Sunday. Uh, but... Islam is such a religion which says that you have to remember Allah the Almighty constantly. Uh, even apart from your five daily prayers, uh, there are so many different prayers. You know, prayers for starting a meal, uh, prayers for if you are uh, going to sleep when you are waking up, um, if you uh, are, you know, if you're walking, if you're going up a steam, steep hill. So. Continuously you are remembering Allah the Almighty uh, So prayer comes from God And it returns to Him And through prayer God comes close to you As your life is close to you And the first bounty of prayer Is that it creates a holy change In the supplicant And in consequence of this change God makes a change in His attributes And His attributes are unchangeable but for a Muslim who has changed himself, 
He has a special manifestation of which the world does not know. As, as if he were another god. He does not become another god, but a new manifestation displays him in a new light. And in that special manifestation, he does for his transformed servant and what he does not do for others. And in short, prayer is that sovereign remedy which converts a handful of dust into precious metal. It is the water which washes out inner impurities. And with such prayer, the soul melts and flowing like water falls at the threshold of the divine. And it stands before God and bows down before him and prostrates itself before him. And indeed, Salat, the formal prayer that Islam teaches is a reflection of such prayer. And uh, when we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he beautifully explains what the effect uh, the prayer has on a body. So it is narrated that once a companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he inquired the benefits of prayer from the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he very beautifully explained that, well, do you see that stream which is running outside? If you were to take a bath within that stream five times a day, would there be any le dirt left on your body? And to this the companion replied that no, there won't be any dirt left. And the, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied that this is the effect that prayer has on our soul, on our spirituality, that it cleanses our soul. So uh, just uh, uh, this week, uh, Brother Walid, on one Wednesday, um, I had a scouts group that visited uh, the Bethel Fatu complex as well. I'm, I mean, you're an expert on this. You, mm. you get all of these groups coming, visiting <laughs> on a daily basis. Mm. But uh, uh, the the scouts group came. There was about um, seventeen to eighteen of them. Mm -hmm. And age? what age? So the ages were ten and a half to fourteen. Okay. Uh -huh. And uh, we were fortunate enough that we got to witness the evening prayer, the Isha prayer. And I was explaining to to them that uh, it, you know it's it's very peaceful, um, and you know you'll be hearing the recitation of the of the Holy Quran as well. And uh, to my surprise, I thought they were going to get bored after listening to one or two rakat rakat mm. of the of the prayer, mm. uh, which is uh, rakat meaning that uh, there are four rakats in the evening prayer that you stand up, you bow down, and you prostrate that. Um, is one rakat so mm. there was there were four rakats and uh, I thought they were going to get bored after half of it but they sat down for the whole prayer mm -hmm. very quietly patiently and they just they just observed mm -hmm. and uh, as soon as it finished they had a lot of questions that oh why why were they buying, bowing down or they were talking about the different um, prostrations or different uh, you know the the, the different um uh, gestures you have within the prayer um, but it, it, it's very interesting uh, because they, a lot of them said that it was uh, very peaceful for them to just see or witness uh, Muslims praying in congregation it was very peaceful for them and this is what young children uh, from the ages of 10 and a half and 14 had to say so that was uh, very mm. uh, very very good to hear mm. 
and uh, it's very interesting that when it comes to the prayer as well um within within as a muslim all all these different prostrations they are all uh islam has has all of them whereas if you look at for example christianity uh you might be sitting down and you might be remembering uh god almighty or in other religion you might just be prostrating or you might be standing up but within islam all of these different postures uh they come together mm. and it, all those different postures are then uh performed in prayer and it is narrated that the prostration within these uh different postures that is when you are the closest to allah the almighty mm. and within that uh, prostration you can pray within your own language um and it's not just the arabic that you have to read but you you can you are free to uh pray within your own language so uh, th- this is the effect uh, that prayer has on the soul as well so the prayer of the of the of the veiled ones is an effort which is manifested in reflection and thinking and the search for means those people who have who not have a connection of insight with god, god almighty nor do they believe in it they too seek through reflection and thinking that some way of success might be indicated to their heart from the unseen and a supplicant pro- possessing insight also desires that god may open the way of success to him but the world one who has no relationship with god almighty does not know the fountain head of grace and he too like one possessing insight seeks help from another quarter and reflects on the means of obtaining such help but a possess- but a person possessing insight has an eye of the fountain head so the other one walks in darkness and does not know whatever strikes the heart after reflection and and cognition it also f- it it o- is also from god almighty who treating the anxiety of the anxious one as a supplicant cast the necessary knowledge into the heart of one who cogitates and the point of wisdom and understanding that enters the heart through reflection also comes from god and through the person himself may not realize it god almighty knows that he is supplic- supplicating him in the end he is bestowed uh, his object by god so this is a uh, beautiful uh, quote and I, i believe this is from the promised messiah peace be upon him on uh, the beauties of prayer as well um so we're just uh, coming to a close in this uh, particular segment as well but uh, uh, if any of our listeners do want to get in touch if they do have anything to say you can call us on 0286877878 or you can tweet to us at voice of islam uk or to listen to any of the programs on the breakfast show from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on weekdays and also the drive time show uh, you can which is from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. you can listen to all of that um, all the information is on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk so yes okay right um, i think um, we can move on now um, and uh, 
let's look at uh sorry i'm i'm just uh, uh laughing because uh, our screen has gone down again uh but uh, fortunately i have got other other ways of working out what time we have uh, and where we are at uh the next particular uh topic is about um uh, gaza how doctors in gaza persevere now those uh who well no one would uh, would uh, be unaware of uh, the conflict that is taking place in the middle east and uh, um there is a lot of devastation that uh, is occurring and no doctor wakes up in the morning and says i'm going to amputate a child's leg without anesthesia you don't want to watch children suffer this is a these are quotes from dr amber alian with doctors without borders uh, medicine on some frontier uh, and um, this is uh, what uh, dr amber told al jazeera the measured uh, uh, cadences of the voice of the charity's deputy program manager for palestine uh, suggests how inconceivable it is for her as a doctor and a mother to cause pain to a patient and to a child and uh, the unfortunate reality is that is what uh, uh, is actually taking place uh, yet uh, it is the um, moral conflict here uh, more more conflict her colleagues in gaza face daily minute by minute as they try to treat unprecedented numbers of injured people flooding into gaza strips barely functioning hospitals um we uh, do hope to have uh, dr aziz afiz with us soon because uh, he uh, is the chairman of the board of uh, of humanity first uh, humanity first was uh, is a charity that was established in the mid uh, 90s uh, in the wake of the bosnian crisis and uh, since its inception it has have been able to uh, help alleviate the suffering of uh, victims of all kinds of tragedies whether they earthquakes or wars uh, or uh, floods um, humanity first has made a point of being there in order to assist in uh, resor- res- in, uh, in trying to um in in alleviating the suffering that has ensued um so it is a very formidable uh, charity it has done done great work in the past and that's why it's going to be uh in, extremely interesting speaking to uh, dr aziz afiz i do know that uh, representatives of the charity have been uh in the uh, conflict zone uh, delivering whatever assistance they are able to do uh to deliver uh in that part of the world um is there anything that uh, um, before we get get to talk to uh, dr aziz afiz is there anything you want to uh, add or want to mention yes i mean uh, as you mentioned that uh, humanity first itself they they're doing an amazing work um in some of the projects that they are doing the uh, a lot of the sanitation projects in uh, in uh, in Palestine itself so uh i believe we are joined by dr aziz afiz now 
Assalamu alaikum. Uh, how are you doing uh, this morning, uh, Brother Dr. Afiz? Um, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I hope you can hear me okay. My reception is not the best. We can hear you loud and clear, Dr. Aziz. Thank, thank you so much for having me on. Okay, what are, what are the main challenges that doctors in Gaza face in delivering health care to their patients? So, this is a difficult question, and some worthy questions. So, in simple terms, the challenges that they face is lack of resource lack of medicines, lack of antibiotics, lack of equipment, lack of oxygen, and lack of power to operate the equipment, to operate the machines that are required to keep, for example, ventilators running, lack of power to keep the dialysis machines running, and lack of security, lack of security to be able to do their jobs. Only last night, the surgeon was shot uh, by a sniper whilst actually operating mm. in one of the hospitals. So the, the challenges are immense for doctors on the ground, unfortunately. And uh, how are these uh, challenges being overcome? So you, when you don't have power, what do you do? So ultimately, the, the one thing that will help overcome these challenges is a cessation of hostilities that will allow things to be put back together slowly. But in the absence of that, what people are trying and what doctors are trying and doctors that, that we met when we were on the ground in Gaza is that they're making do, making do, improvising as best they can. Uh, small car batteries are used to operate certain pieces of equipment, uh, you know, simple handheld devices uh, with sort of rudimentary batteries keep things running where there are generators and where they are functioning. Uh, they are made use of with what little fuel there is uh, available, but in reality, there is no there is no improvisation. They are just making do with the, the basic tools that they have, which is their own clinical acumen, what they can do with their own bare hands, and the limited supplies they have. And ultimately, it means that many many are dying, and then they they can't save uh, as many as they would like. Mm -hmm. So it's a rudimentary, basic service within the confines and the constraints that they have. And you and you have to imagine, these, these doctors have also got families. They've also got families that are getting bombed. They're also living on the, on the streets themselves. They also don't have access to food and water for themselves. And yet they're running 30 hours, 40 hours, continuously, continuously. They're absolutely exhausted. Mm. And, and when it comes to um, shortages of essential medical supplies and equipment, what, what, what's done uh, to cover the shortfall? Uh, and the work sector, there isn't. The, the, the frank reality is there isn't anything to cover the shortfall. The aid that is getting in is, is haphazard. It's about 100 trucks a day, as you know. But even that aid, it's not in a directly coordinated way. So you can't say that you will get X amount of medical supplies and X amount of consumables and X amount of water. It, it is sadly potluck what gets through and what doesn't. Hmm. Uh, um, Imam Tukhi has, uh, has, a, has a couple of questions, uh, if you don't mind. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, yes, uh, Dr. 
Fiza, I wanted to ask you, in what ways do doctors in Gaza prioritize the well-being of their patients despite the difficult circumstances they work in? So all doctors across the world, uh, whichever circumstances they're working in, have a basic triage system. Uh, and it's, an, it's a quite a crude triage system, but it essentially allows you to understand who to help. For example, if anybody's uh, walking, then, then clearly their priority is less. Uh, those people that cannot respond, you, they're automatically prioritized uh, in, a, in, a, in a higher level. Uh, so it's a crude measure that allows you to see who needs to be treated first. Uh, for example, if you have a room of 100 people, a doctor would shout, okay, those that can walk, walk over to this side. So they'll walk over to one side, you know that they can wait. And then those that are left, see those that can actually communicate, those that can't, you know that they're in a real dire situation. And with this way, you will prioritize and you will reach those that are unconscious, those that are bleeding, and that's how you effectively prioritize, whether it is Gaza or whether it's in any other situation. Even in the UK, in acute emergencies, we do the same. Great, thank you so much for that. And, and also, how do doctors in Gaza, they cope with emotional and uh, psychological toll of providing medical care in a conflicted, uh, er affected area? So this is the million dollar challenge that doctors across the world face. And doctors in Gaza, not only doctors, the whole population is suffering from severe traumatic damage. Uh, and, and doctors are only human as well. Yes, they're professional, but uh, they struggle with the challenges of knowing whether their families are alive or not. They struggle with uh, not able to, uh, to, to, to digest the trauma that they're seeing. And you can imagine, if you're a trauma doctor, you're in the trauma unit, and the next patient that is rushed through, uh, sort of in sort of blood covered, and you look and you realize it's your own son. Mm. You realize it's your own daughter. Mm. You realize it's your own mother. You'll have, you'll have seen some of these examples on some of the TV screens and some of the Instagram footage that you see. Uh, it is, it's an impossible thing. Uh, I, as a doctor, despite that professional training, I have no idea how to deal with that. But these people are dealing with it, and they're dealing with it in an absolutely settling way. Thank you so much for that. Uh, do you think um, that, uh, I mean, you've, you've, Humanity First has been doing a phenomenal work and other charities have been supporting Gaza, you know, as best as they can. Uh, do you see the situation um, getting better in the next month or so? Or what, how do you think this, things are right now as well? What, what's your view on this, Dr. Afiz? Dr. Sadly, the situation is only getting worse day by day. Only this morning, this morning, literally an hour before your call, mm. I was speaking to our representative in Gaza, Yasser Shaheen, who tries to report as best he can. He himself is an IDP living in a school with 4,000 other families. And the bombing last night was, was intense in, mm. in, in Rafah. Mm. Uh, I mean, he has two young daughters, five-year-old, seven-year-old, and then they are screaming all night, the bombing was very close to the UN compound in Rafa, so it clearly is increasing, uh, and, and and we don't know what will happen. You know, there there are nearly two million people there 
living on the streets, living in impromptu shelters, uh, an attack on the city will just be absolutely catastrophic. Catastrophic. So mm. I really, I really don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so surprising as well that uh, you know quite often what um, the media itself here is not highlighting this these situations as much, but. Uh, on the ground level quite often you'd see the locals who are living there quite often they'd post these videos on social media that look this is the situation but when we look at it from a broader point of view i don't not much is being uh, highlighted in the media at all uh, what would you say to that uh, dr rafiz so obviously as a, as a humanitarian i can only comment on the humanitarian challenges the humanitarian impact uh yes that impact is huge and one of the roles that we as humanitarians have is humanitarian advocacy and by that we mean highlighting to the world the humanitarian challenges so when members of the public actually highlight to the world using social media on the ground uh that helps in some way letting the world know about the challenges of food water health etc mm-hmm. great Where, where, Dr. Where do you think uh, the new challenges are going to be if we don't have a ceasefire? Things continue to uh, take place as they are now. What are the medical challenges that you see coming, uh, adding to what is already being suffered? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So the, the challenges that we foresee... Uh, we're having a huge amount of chest infections, a huge amount of respiratory infections, particularly within the IDP population. These are going untreated because of a lack of medicine. So these these will sadly expand, and the young may well be able to fight them off, but the elderly and the very young will 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 succumb to those, and and you will see increasing death from chest infections. Uh, we're getting a huge increase in chronic diarrhea due to them drinking. dirty water because they have no choice uh that chronic diarrhea spreads it's it's infective uh if you can imagine you got billions of people living in unsanitary conditions uh with no way trying to keep themselves clean uh so that disease will spread that will sadly finish off the elderly and the vulnerable uh those people that are immunocompromised cancer patients people with the chronic diseases pre-existing diabetes bronchitis um immune suppression uh, they will sadly succumb to that so an expansion of the hostilities at the moment uh, the the bombing yes the bombing will kill people with injuries and trauma but it's the disease that sadly will kill far more mm-hmm. and then on the other hand it it's starvation people people are literally starving uh and famine is very much there yes there are de- there's debates between which authority you ask whether it's officially famine or not officially famine uh but in north gaza the 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 3 4 500,000 people that are still there uh, are in a dire state again last night we were speaking to Tariq one of our volunteers who's still in Gaza city uh he's refused to move to the south he's looking after elderly family uh and yeah food is uh, food is non existent so every other day they find some plain soup uh, if if they're lucky uh so yeah people are hungry people are starving 
been just just our own colleagues that I met in, in Rafa, uh, not having seen them for two years. Last saw them in November 21, and they lost a huge amount of weight, a huge amount of weight, literally. You know, you can recognize them. They were, they were, they were a bag of bones, mm. but everybody looking like that. Mm. And what about the psychological repercussions in the long term? How do you see that? So they're huge, particularly on children. Uh, you, you've, you've seen a lot about the children. You'll have, you'll have seen the Bournemouth video, which has shown 10,000 children's bodies, how they would look on a long beach. Uh, the reality is the psychological trauma impacts children far more. Uh, and it has physical impact, uh, bedwetting, unable to sleep, uh, abdominal pain, headaches, it's physical manifestation of that psychological trauma, and then at the same time, there are psychological manifestations, screaming, nightmares, being irritable, sometimes being aggressive, sometimes being very tearful, uh, and and this is all before, and I have to, I have to share as a, as a humanitarian, that when you have more than 11,000 orphans in a conflict zone like that, sadly, they will be picked up uh, by uh, nefarious organizations that will use those children to their benefit uh, for unsavory terrorist activities. Mm. This is how such organizations thrive. Uh, they, they'll, they'll, they'll grab these children, hopefully they'll support them with food water, uh, but they will be manipulated. So sadly, uh, this situation is a breeding ground uh, for further terror, sadly. Mm. Oh dear, right. Uh, doesn't look too good. Uh, I suppose um, uh, you're doing, I'm sure, all you can. And uh, we here, I think we need to remember uh, both the victims and those people who are trying to help the victims in our prayers. Uh, this is something that... Uh, uh, His Holiness has been calling us to do is to intensify our prayers for the for the victims of that particular conflict, and let's hope that uh, uh, it finds a resolution very very soon. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, uh, Dr. Aziz Fiz. I wish you all the best in your work and uh, the work of your volunteers in this particular in this particular sector. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. All right, it's over to you, Imam Tukir. Yes, no, I mean, uh, fantastic work Humanity First is doing um, on the ground level in 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 Gaza, and uh, you can just really uh, listening to Doctor Aziz Afiz, uh, you realize that uh, really how bad the situation is. Mm. That the the bombs are still ongoing. Um, you know, people are still suffering, and uh, regardless of that, it's it's so difficult to get aid into into that part of the uh, of Gaza. Mm. It's it's just unbelievable. Um, and uh, you know, you'd expect that maybe your neighboring countries might accept them as refugees. Um, well, if we look at uh, maybe last year when the whole situation with the Russia and Ukraine. So many countries they welcomed uh, Ukraine, mm. um, you know, people of Ukraine to their countries to settle there. But we see quite the opposite with yes. what's going on in Gaza. 
Yes. And uh, I think one of, one of the reasons they, they don't want to leave is because they feel that they won't be able to come back. That was not the case with uh, with the Ukrainian refugees mm. that they would always be welcome mm. back. Mm. But this is, uh, I think, this is one of the uh, one of the issues that is hindering the uh, the transfer of population from one from Gaza to uh, to neighboring countries. They feel that they would not be able to get back, uh, and uh, that's why it's not happening. Um, but at the same time, I think we, we need to remember that uh, the world community is very much in favor of uh, a, a resolution through um, a ceasefire, immediate ceasefire. Mm. Uh, the votes in the UN mm. uh, were very emphatic, mm. uh, but uh, a ceasefire could not be uh, uh, engendered because... Um, uh, there was a veto in the United mm, Nations, and mm. therefore that uh, could not be implemented. But uh, it was also interesting to note that uh, uh, President Biden uh, yesterday uh, was uh, was uh, conceding the fact that perhaps uh, Israel has gone over the top. I mean, he used that kind of uh, phraseology, uh, and that perhaps it should... Uh, roll back on the severity of uh, its actions uh, on that strip. Um, but uh, uh, it's a very um, painful situation. Absolutely. I mean, even after these statements, you know, the bombings hasn't stopped. No. It's still ongoing. Yeah. We've just heard it that from uh, just yesterday, you know, there, yeah. there, there's still bombing going on. Yes. People are suffering. So it's, it's continuing. Um, and and uh, as you mentioned, Brother Ali, that um, our thoughts and prayers go out to the victims and uh, those brothers and sisters who are on the ground level and they are helping um, uh, the, those vulnerable people as well. And actually this reminds me of uh, the, nar- the, uh, the narration of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in which he explains uh, how dare it is to help those poor and vulnerable people of the society. And uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he mentioned that on the Day of Judgment, there will be two groups who who are being addressed on the Day of Judgment. Um, and what, addressing one group, Allah the Almighty will say to them that uh, he was on the earth and he was thirsty and he was hungry, and he did not uh, those the, that group did not quench their thirst or did not give him that food to eat and the group being addressed in in their amazement they would say that oh god that when was it that on earth you were hungry or you were thirsty and we did not quench your thirst or we did not give you food to eat and uh, in response to this allah the almighty would say that my such and such servant of mine on earth, they 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 were hungry or they were thirsty, and you did not after look after them. Had you looked after them, it would have as have been as if you had fed me or you had given me water. So from this narration, we see how dear it is in the in the eyes of Allah the Almighty to help those vulnerable and uh, you know vulnerable people of the society. And similarly, uh, within this narration, another group of be- people would be being addressed and Allah the Almighty will say to them that 
on earth that when he was hungry or he was thirsty uh that you gave sustenance you gave him food or you gave him water to drink and that group being addressed will say that when was it that we gave you water or we gave you food and allah the almighty in reply to this he would say that such and such person of mine was hungry or they were thirsty uh and and you had looked after them and uh, we we see how dear it is to god to help the poor and vulnerable in fact the promised messiah peace be upon him the founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community he says that sincerity towards and love for humanity is part of faith and the definition of the highest moral values is that sincere kindness and sympathy be professed towards all humanity without any expectation or of reward or recompense this is what is known as true humanity and the promised messiah peace be upon him he further states that allah the almighty he never forsakes those people who who hold within their hearts sincere love for humanity and these precious words of the promised messiah they should be your guiding light and remain etched in your heart and mind at all times and they should underscore the fact that through allah's grace and mercy alone you have been able to acquire the knowledge and proficiency through which you can help and serve humanity in a way that others cannot and you must utilize these skills for the sake of elevating the suffering of mankind and thus it should not not be that our md doctors they their expertise only for the sake of earning the riches of the world or for climbing the professional ladder rather it is imperative that each and every one of you sacrifices significant period of your lives for the service of the community by utilizing your expertise and training for the sake of humanity and only then will you fulfill the rights of humanity of mankind according to your capabilities and only then will you be able to be counted amongst those people who acquired the highest morals as outlined by the promised messiah peace be upon him so uh, this uh, this is what his holiness uh, mentioned to the ahmadi doctors um, for an event which was held here um and also um another ab- ab- extract from his holiness and this is uh, the address he gave uh, at the nasser hospital in guatemala and his holiness he said that in chapter 19 verse 15 to 17 of the holy quran muslims are instructed to feed the hungry to show empathy and love to orphans and to help anyone in need and especially those made in poverty or those or who are defenseless and weak and muslims are taught to be the ones who comfort and love those people who have been failed by society and to carry the weight of their burdens on their own shoulders and muslims are duty bound to help underprivileged people so they can stand upon their own two feet live with dignity and feed uh, and be freed from their desperate circumstances and in return the quran states that muslims will be rewarded with increased spirituality which in turn 
will take them towards God Almighty and make them recipients of His pleasure. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the MD Muslim community, said that treat all the creation of God with such deep love as through they are your close family members and treat mankind in the same way that a mother treats her child. And this is this is the way you should uh, you should be and uh, not that you help someone only uh, so that you can attain benefits later or take a favor in return. So this is a very important point that uh, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, is mentioned here. And uh, in terms of doing good to others, the Quran has laid three stages. So one is called Adal. So if someone does good to you in return, uh, you know, you do the same amount. This is called uh, justice or Adal. And the the stage which is above that is called Ihsan. So if, uh, let's say, for example, someone um, he gives food to you, in return what you would do is that uh, you'd probably look after them for, for a week. You'd give them food for a week. So this would be Ihsan that... Uh, not only would you be doing justice, but you'd be doing more than justice. You'd be, you'd be giving them more in return. And the last stage, which, which is mentioned in the Holy Quran, is itai izil kurba. And as just as the quote I've mentioned here, that just as a mother treats a child, this is the highest stage that naturally. Uh, a person is inclined towards serving humanity and uh, this is that stage that uh, just as a mother love her children uh, she doesn't do it out of any reward um, you know she a mother when she looks after the child when the child is hungry or if the child needs anything mother is continu- continuously looking after that child so this is the love which uh, which the promised Messiah peace be upon him he explains that this is the highest level uh, of of that spirituality that uh, you don't do it for any reward you don't do it for any recompense but you do it just because of that love you have for humanity yeah so uh, th- this this is something which I wanted to mention and in chapter sixteen verse ninety one of the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty he has instructed Muslims to act with justice and to do good to all others. Hence, you must treat even those people with love who have done no good to you. And in fact, you should go beyond this and uh, favor them and care for them as a mother cares for her child. And out of a desire to serve humanity, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he studied traditional native medicine and would keep a stock of such medication in his home. And as a result, the local people would visit him, and irrespective of their caste, creed or color, he would distribute medicine to them according to, to, their, to their needs. And many people, especially the poorest and most deprived members of society, benefit generally from this provision. And the only desire and objective of the promised Messiah was to serve humanity and and this was the great treasure and legacy that he left behind for his community and thus the efforts of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to serve humanity in all parts of the world are entirely motivated out of a desire 
to ease the suffering of mankind. And this is why Humanity First is today opening its first hospital in this part of the world. With all my heart, I hope and pray that it fulfills its mandate and provides an exceptional means of elevating the suffering of people regardless of their religious belief, regardless of their age and regardless of their ethnic or social background as I have said that we desire no reward or praise from the world. Our only target is to seek the love and favor of God Almighty. So this was uh, His Holiness Hazim Azam Suramid, uh, may Allah be his helper, the address which he gave at the inauguration of Nasser Hospital in Guatemala in 2016. And uh, it's you can see that uh, how His Holiness from the life of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, that, you know, we we see from his life that he he was a champion of religion. Uh, we know that throughout his life he wrote over hundred books, which we now know as Rohani uh, Khazan, uh, the spiritual treasures, the twenty three volumes. But also there was the Malfuzat, uh, a lot of different addresses which the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, gave at different occasions. So apart from that, you know he cared for humanity so much that uh, from the knowledge he had of medicine he would help the local people give them medicine and uh, look after them in any way he can even though he you know he spent his whole life defending religion or defending islam at that time um you know be being a a prophet who was sent by god um from his own personal time he took time out just to elevate the suffering of the society mm. uh, just out of that uh, love he had and uh, this is what has been instilled within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as also uh, as His Holiness mentioned that the inauguration of uh, of the hospital in Guatemala um, we know that majority of the population in Guatemala they are Christians um, not Muslim so His Holiness you know the the purpose of it was actually to serve humanity um and uh, that was one reason why uh the nasser hospital it was uh it was built in in that uh in that country um and i i guess an, another point here to mention is that within latin america the the community is very small um although there are missionaries over there who are working tirelessly the the community itself is still in minority um so obviously it's a fantastic initiative that uh, from the guidance of his holiness that you know a hospital was built there um but we see that even in other countries such as indonesia in african countries you know the the community has hospitals it has schools uh, which caters for the vulnerable members of the society and and uh, that is all because you know just as i mentioned earlier that there there are two main fundamentals of the sharia that uh, you give due rights towards allah the almighty but also you give due rights towards his creation and that itself is a big aspect of attaining closeness with allah the almighty and through these um efforts 
you know, um, the these members or the Amdi Muslim community, it does so to attain the pleasure of Allah the Almighty. And I think with that, we can close this uh, yeah. We can close this segment. But I guess, just, if you don't mind, I just want to add one or two things just to endorse what you're saying. Uh, I think prophets do have a deep sense of compassion for humanity. And uh, this is something that was illustrated by, by the Promised Messiah. I remember reading about an incident that was related by one of his companions, Mulvi Abdul Karim. He said that uh, once the Promised Messiah had a very important uh, discourse to prepare but uh, then people started coming uh, old ladies uh, and others uh, wanting uh, assistance in treatment for the ailments and so instead of uh, attending to the discourse that he had to prepare he actually spent hours and hours on uh, dispensing medicines and uh, attending uh, to the ailments that people had brought mm-hmm. to him and uh, when uh, Molly Abdul Karim and maybe others complained that you know you had some, you know you're spending time on this, um, he responded that where else you know where else will they go? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean they uh, they need help and mm-hmm. and he said that it is uh, that he finds pleasure in in serving in serving people in this way much more so than preparing something that he had to do which would perhaps be more beneficial to him personally but this was where uh, his his resources needed to be uh, expended and it's also interesting that this this kind of um, sentiment um, was also is also shown by the um, the uh, uh, the uh, successors of the promise Messiah. so we we hear also about uh, the fourth caliph, I remember this particular story that uh, when uh, his daughter was uh, very ill, uh, he was found uh, to be in his office dispensing medicines to people. And uh, when a complaint was brought to him that, look, there is uh, a, a problem in your, in your household, you know, why don't you go and attend to that? He said something very similar. He said, if I do that, then where are these people mm. that are gathered to mm. uh, seek assistance, medical assistance going to go? So this concern, compassion for humanity as a whole runs very deeply in people who are holy, particularly prophets. And it is this compassion that uh, is one of the factors that makes them... Uh, that qualifies them for uh, for uh, to be be the messengers of be the conduits through God through which God uh, actually expresses His guidance. So it is that this compassion that that generates that guidance from God. So it is something that that's very important in people that are holy and people that are. Uh, that are prophets, that we find that this characteristic is very, very noteworthy and that is very much apparent in such people. So, if it's okay, we can end with that, unless <laughs> you want to have the last <laughs> No, no, that's <laughs> okay. it. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to mention that, just to endorse what you were saying uh, earlier. Um, and we, we do have to end it there now, uh, because time is pressing and we're fast approaching the, the 9 o'clock news in a few minutes. So, let me uh, offer 
a word of gratitude to those people who are very much deserving. Uh, our uh, producer, uh, Maliha, uh, is certainly deserving of her thanks. Lead producer, Nagis Nasser and Maliha Abdullah also. Uh, and then they were assisted by researchers Basma Latif and Neha. Uh, so uh, thank you to, uh, to them both. Uh, and then uh, we mustn't forget uh, Muhammad Shafiq, who, who worked uh, very patiently and diligently to make sure that despite the technical difficulties, uh, the, the show uh, rolled on uh, and uh, was with us uh, throughout uh, with, uh, with his support. So uh, thank you to him. And then we mustn't forget uh, our contributors, uh, both uh, Wakar Ahmadi. Wakar Ahmadi is uh, the head of uh, religious education uh, and has been the head of religious education for many, many years, uh, both uh, initially uh, in, in the Midlands and now uh, in in Surrey. Um, so thank you to him for coming on. He actually uh, gave us uh, more insight into the first of our main topics, which was about the banning of students from praying, the, the school banning uh, students from praying. So that was the first topic that we looked at. The second topic we looked at was really the ongoing conflict in Gaza and how doctors in Gaza persevere. And there we were very much assisted uh, in our understanding of that particular issue. Uh, by Dr. Aziz Afiz. And Dr. Aziz Afiz is a GP, a medical doctor himself, uh, but he also is uh, the uh, chair of uh, the board of Humanity First uh, in the UK. And he was uh, very kind enough to uh, give us some time in order to help us uh, understand what is happening there and uh, how... Uh, people are persevering uh, in that part of the world despite the bombing, uh, the paucity uh, and the restriction of resources and the absence of food and water. That, Despite that, people are persisting. And uh, he also elucidated upon the long-term damage that that is doing both uh, on the population at present and also what may lie ahead uh, in the future, not only through psychological damage, but also damage that may result in the way that people uh, behave afterwards and becoming very much uh, the conflict, very much becoming a recruiting sergeant for uh, for further uh, terrorists uh, in that part of the world, uh, something that's very, very worrying. Um, so thank you to uh, our listeners as well for staying the course. We do hope that you will join us uh, uh, throughout the week. Uh, that is Monday to Friday for the breakfast show. It is aired uh, like today from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Uh, we'll be back uh, again on Friday, myself and uh, either um, Imam Tokir or uh, our um, uh, third um, uh, co-presenter, uh, Jalis Khan, uh, we'll be back on, on Friday again. So I hope you will be able to join us uh, for the breakfast show next time. So here in a few minutes will be the uh, news. Until then, there's a short interlude. Assalamu alaikum from Masbo.